Not, not being cynical. Not saying the war was there just because of cable TV, but that was when CNN really became a thing. And on the news every night, I remember being a high school kid and seeing hundreds and hundreds of people surrendering. And they would all be walking the same way. There'd be a picture of the desert. I mean, you guys probably remember these scenes. Big picture of wide open desert and just lines and lines of hundreds of people walking like this, surrendering. And it was like, gosh, so many, like this is a war and it's a Persian Gulf war and you know, there's tanks and there's army and all this. There's so many people surrendering. And it wasn't until years later, working at a shoe store and my coworker makes a comment about when he served in the Persian Gulf. I'm like, whoa, what was that like? So he starts telling me and I learned about some things that even today are pretty amazing to me. So the reason why there were so many, and you probably heard this too, there were so many surrenders is because the United States, or the, what were they called? I don't want to say the Allied Forces, that's World War II. I'll say the United States. They flew over and they dropped 29 million pounds of pamphlets. No, 29 million pamphlets, like church bulletins. I mean, I'm at the, they were about that big. 29 million leaflets were dropped in two months. So think about the scale of that. You say, okay, wait a minute, what? These leaflets would have a picture of a bomb on them. And they would have writing in Arabic that those guys could read. And they would say things like this. Iraqi military forces. Saddam Hussein's policy of aggression is the only reason for the bombing of Iraq. We're only bombing Iraq because of your leader, because of Saddam Hussein. The bombing is for military targets only. We don't want to hurt any innocent people. We have overwhelming air superiority. Okay, so what does that mean? We have bigger guns than you could ever imagine. Resistance is purposeless. The outcome is inevitable. Save yourselves, leave your weapons, go immediately to the safe area. Saddam Hussein is to blame. So there you are, you're an Iraq soldier, you're fighting for Saddam Hussein, and it just rains thousands of pamphlets down on top of you. There's another one that said, tomorrow this will be a bomb. So can you imagine being in your bunker and all these pamphlets and flyers fall down and they say, tomorrow this will be a bomb. And then you would flip it over and guess what was on the back? Four easy steps to surrender. Leave your gun behind. Put your hands up behind. It was the exact thing that we saw, saw on the news. Walk in a straight line away from your vehicle and we'll greet you as a, as a brother at the border. You will be welcomed when you surrender. And so these guys would be fighting and all of a sudden it just rains pamphlets and they thought they were gonna get bombed by an explosive and it's this piece of paper that says, 
Uh, some of them had diagrams and comic strips. Like, here's your tank, walk in this direction because we're gonna blow up your tank, but we don't wanna blow up you. Like, they were really forthright. And so, word spread fast. Word spread fast among all the Iraq troops that if you got the pamphlet, that meant the next day you were going to die. The, uh, the U.S. military didn't do it at random. They actually used calculus and they used weather balloons to measure the direction of the wind and they, because they didn't want to just mindlessly litter. Isn't this funny? Like, it's war. They don't want to mindlessly litter. What? And the Iraq troops were like, if they could aim a flyer from a bomber, what chance do we have against an actual bomb that's directed? Happy Palm Sunday. So what does this have to do with anything? This is a real life, uh, it's kind of a propaganda scare campaign. And look what it did. I mean, imagine being those guys and all of a sudden you get the pamphlet that's got a cartoon drawing of a bomb on it that says, tomorrow this will be a real bomb. What are you going to do? When 1 Samuel chapter 11, Nahash the Ammonite went up and he besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said, make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. Don't hurt us. We surrender. Nahash was a bad dude, you guys. Nahash said, okay, here's how we'll make a treaty. I'll make a treaty with you if every one of you men gouges out your right eyeball. We're going to gouge out your right eyeball, and then it'll show what a disgrace you all are as a nation, Israel. I mean, he is a trash talker. He is vicious. We're going to be in disgrace on all of you. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days. Give us seven days respite that we can send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. And if nobody comes to save us, we'll give ourselves up. So think that through. Okay, wait. Before you, take, before you steal my wallet, can I make some phone calls and tell all my buddies with machine guns where we are? as you're robbing me of my wallet and give me about three hours to get all my bros here and then they'll shoot you and you won't steal my wallet. That's basically what he's doing. And Nahash is so tough and so arrogant about his power and his strength. He's like, go ahead. Take your seven days. Call for help because it's not coming. You won't get help, and I will take over your land. Think about that. What fear that would put. So you're the people of Jabesh, and you're like, we got to go for help. Will you give us seven days to call for help? And he's like, go for all the help you want. In seven days, I'm coming, and I'll, you're not going to find it. That is terrifying. Josephus wrote about it, and then they found this little excerpt in, in one, of the cop, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that adds a commentary before this that Nahash had already conquered two of the tribes across the Jordan and had gouged out all the eyes, the, the right eyes of all of the men of two tribes that were across the Jordan. So they knew 
that he had the power to do this. The word had spread. Uh, These people in Gilead may have actually been refugees that fled from that to make it there. But now Nahash has crossed the Jordan and he is coming into Israel. And you know what's going to happen, right? He's just going to make his way all the way through all of Israel and just take over everybody. Gouge out all their eyes. So they're terrified. Well, the other thing that Nahash did when he said, go ahead, go run for help. Ask every, go to every town in Israel and ask for help. Is he's passing out these flyers. It's like he's bombing Israel with brochures. Nahash is coming. You can't stop him. And I will have all of your right eyes. And so they have seven days in in Gilead. They have seven days of terror. Of just, "Ah, this is bad. They send out word. Every city they come to is going to be terror stricken, right? Alright, so a little bit about the right... Why is he gouging out the right eye? Uh, I mean, it's terrible, for one thing. But you also can't fight. I can push a plow. I can dig a hole. I can farm. I can do close-up work with one eye. But I need two eyes. I need depth perception, so I'm not going to be able to shoot a bow and arrow. I'm not going to be able to throw a spear. I'm not going to be able to throw a rock. The other thing, there's one commentary I read... And they would hide behind their shields. They would peek. And if you don't have your right eye, you can't peek. So they're, militarily speaking, they're, they're all weakened. Not, not to mention the pain and how many people are going to die of infection. And just the shame, the shame of it, right? So they spread the terror. They spread the terror through Israel. They passed the word on. Nahash is coming. Nahash is coming. The people that stayed behind, they're like, nobody's going to come save us. Right? What are we going to do? The messengers come to Gebeah of Saul. They reported the matter. And all the people wept aloud. They're just grieving because they they don't have any hope. They, They know that their doom is coming. Saul... Remember Saul? He was coming from the field behind some oxen. The dude just got made king, ordained in secret by Samuel, then ordained publicly in front of everybody, and he was hiding among the things, and they said, where is he? And he's in the common stuff, and they pull him out there. They all celebrate. All these fighting men are like, we're going to go with Saul. And they go with him, and where is Saul? pushing some oxen through his field, plowing. So even though he's been made king, he hasn't started to act like a king yet. And in some ways, maybe he hasn't had the opportunity or the need. And so Saul hears all this craziness going on in town. And he comes in, he goes, what's with all this weeping? What's going on? And they told him the news of the men of Gib- the Jabesh said so here he is he has been everybody in Israel or at least a big chunk of it knows about Saul because he was going all over the place looking for his lost donkeys right 
Then he went back and he went with the prophets and everybody started that saying, what, is Saul a prophet too? They had the big assembly where they made him king and now word is going out all over that Nahash is coming to rule over all of us. What are we going to do? Praise God for 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. So Saul was ordained to be king. But the, the motivation to do something wasn't needed yet. And when it was needed, God came and gave him that strength. His anger was greatly kindled. He took the yoke of oxen. He cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger. So the guys that were going around looking for help now have big cuts of meat of some oxen. But wait a minute. These aren't oxen that were for eating. These were oxen for work. And they're cut up. And from the message from King Saul is... Whoever does not come out behind Saul and Samuel will be turned out like these oxen. So is it a threat of come join Saul or we're going to cut you up like an ox? Or is it if we don't fight, Nahash is going to come and he's going to chop us up? We don't know, but it could have been interpreted either way, right? The dread of the Lord fell upon all the people. And they came out like one man. So all of a sudden, do you remember what they prayed for? They asked, they asked God for a king that would unite us and save us from the Philistines. They needed somebody to bring them together. Remember the, the chorus throughout the book of Judges? There was no king in the land, so everybody did as they pleased. And so the thing that's going to bring everybody together is a king. A king's going to unify them. And God told them they could ask for a king. He had some rules for the king. The circumstances they asked for the king, he didn't really like. But he gave them a king anyway. Now this king has, with the help of the Holy Spirit, the events drawn and led by the king have drawn them all as symbol as one man. Yes! He musters them. He musters this army together. The army of Israel was 300,000 and the men of Judah was 30,000. There's another translation that says 70,000. So they got like over, well over 300,000 troops ready to fight. They said to the messengers, they send back word to the messengers. Remember the guys that are really scared because they only got seven days and they're worried about their eyes getting picked up. Tell them tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have salvation. You will be delivered. <sighs> what a relief. Help is coming. They told the men of Jabesh they were glad. They said to Jabesh, tomorrow we'll give ourselves up to you. They go to the men of Nahash. They're like, we'll surrender to you tomorrow afternoon. After the heat of the day. Because they're all thinking by the heat of the day tomorrow, something's going to happen. And then you can do what, to us whatever seems good. All right, we're going to pause right there. Imagine all that fear. Imagine how awful life would be if you lived in that kind of fear where 
all of a sudden there's a warlord. I mean, it's kind of like anarchy, right? And this warlord comes with his army and Man, if we need help, we got to go and we got to get people to help us and we got to muster up our own army to fight against their army. And we don't know what's going to happen. Imagine living in fear of those messengers. You know, those messengers come to town, they're like, man, up in Jabesh, it's bad. Nahash has showed up, he came across the Jordan. You know what he did on the other side of the Jordan? He wiped out all those guys and they're all one eyed farmers now. None of them can fight. Plus the pain of it. So whenever you'd see somebody come from out of town, you'd hear this. You'd want to know what, why are they here? What news do they have? Are you somebody looking, some rich, handsome dude looking for his donkeys? Or are you telling us that a war is coming? What is it? And just how building in them is this longing to save us. God, Save us. Rescue us from the, from the fan to the Philistines. Remember how we read that the Philistines would wait until the harvest time. They wouldn't bother Israel at all. They would let Israel grow and flourish and have all these awesome crops. And when the time for the harvest came, boom, Philistines would swoop in, steal all their food, take all their harvest, and then leave. They didn't care about hurting them. They didn't care about fighting with them. They just wanted to just absolutely steal everything they had that was food, right? So you can see where these people would be like, Oh, God, give us a king. We need a king to unite us. So put this in modern terms. Where you flip on the news and it's only bad news. It's bad news or it's dog birthdays, right? Like, whenever they have good news, you can tell they're really trying hard to not just have a newscast that's nothing but bad news. But the good news they have is so shallow and so dumb that you don't even get excited about the good news. They're bad at the good news. They're getting so good at the bad news that they're bad at the good news. Does that make sense? And so you watch that and you're like, gosh, this is terrible. And what does your song become? Your song becomes, this is terrible. Oh, this world. Oh, gosh. These people. And you start to have this habit. I mean, I know I struggle with that. A habit of talking about how dumb people are. How stupid people are. And how evil people are. And how they do these horrible things. What if our song that we sang instead was, Lord, save us. Lord, save, save that guy. Gosh, that guy did that. Save him, Lord. What if we were occupied by a foreign country that didn't let us practice our religion in the right way? And they were oppressive to us and they taxed us. They took 90% of our income as taxes. And it was legal, legal theft, so to speak. And all of a sudden this guy shows up that's just miraculous. And he does things that nobody's ever done. And he teaches in a way that he never teaches before. And by golly, he's marching into Washington, D.C., right? He is marching into the Capitol on one of our most exciting days of the year. You can see why everybody gathered around Jesus and started shouting, Save us now! Save us now! Because they think Jesus 
they're right. But they think Jesus is the fulfillment of what Saul started out to be. We just sung about the son of David, right? Israel's kings were, the purpose of the king was to unite the people as they serve God. Isn't that wild? Like, that's not what the priest did. The priest's job was to, to interact, to be the go-between between man and God. The king was to unite everybody as they listened and obeyed the priests. And so when Jesus comes on Palm Sunday, everybody is looking at him and he's like, Saul couldn't do it. David tried to do it, but he wasn't perfect. But this guy, this is the king. And so when you look back at what Saul did and you look back at what David did, it's the ful- Jesus is the fulfillment of what everybody wanted a king to do. So here's what Saul did. Tomorrow, the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch. So the morning watch would have been right when the sun is coming up. They struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. They just trashed these guys. They, Nahash and the Ammonites and his army had no idea that Israel even had an army. Much less 330,000 fighting men, right? Just absolute win. They struck him down until the heat of the day. Those who survived were so scattered that no two of them left together. So Saul led in this fight that was so, so brutal and so victorious that the guys that survived and fled thought they were the only survivor. Think that. Think about that. Like, wow. So Saul... I mean, yes, violence is terrible, war is awful, but look at the victory of Saul. That God, the whole point was that God would send Saul to save Israel, and he saved him so strong that the stragglers thought they were the only one. Those that survived, uh, let's see, verse 12. The people said to Samuel, who is it that said they don't want Saul to reign over us? Everybody was so excited that they won. They're like, bring us whoever was against Saul. Saul is awesome. Not a man shall be put to death today, for today the Lord has worked salvation upon Israel. Wow. Saul gives credit to God. God's the one that saved us. Whoever was against us isn't going to suffer today. Because God has saved Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there we will renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal. They made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings for the Lord, and Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Okay, wait. Wasn't Saul made king last week? Wasn't Saul made king the week before that? (laughs) This is like a repetitive thing. Well... I always make jokes. I make jokes with some of my friends that they work at churches and their pastor leaves and they're trying to hire a new pastor. And I say, hey, you guys, I'll be your transitional pastor if you want me to. And they're like, what? And I'm like, well, everybody hates the first pastor. 
So I'll only be there like a month or two and everybody will hate me and then I'll go back to doing what I'm doing. And the next person they get, they'll love. They don't think I'm very funny. Saul is the king that's the transition king from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. Israel doesn't know how to have a king. Israel doesn't doesn't have anybody in Israel that knows how to be a king. And so they're like, we want a king, we want a king. And God is like, yes, here's how we're going to do it. And then Israel's like, we want a king, we want a king. And God's like, oh yes, I gave you a king and here he is. And Israel's like, great, we want a king. Three times over, and we'll, we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, when they really, really get a king, and they really, really get Saul as the king, and then they still struggle with it. But that's what's happening. He got made king, and they just didn't get it. They didn't, it, it takes a while to be like, wait a minute, we have a king now. So that means all of our land belongs to him. That, that's what they'll realize next. It's this slow process, and through it, here's God. He did it on Palm Sunday, too. Where there's people that are like, Jesus is the Savior. Save us now, Jesus. And Jesus is like, I'm, I'm in the process of doing that. And the people are like, kill all the Romans, Jesus. And he's like, that's not how we're going to do this. I'm going to get killed. Even Peter, you can't die. Jesus, get behind me, Satan. This is what I have to do. So that this whole process of man thinking what he needs, thinks he knows what he needs, and forcing God into that box, and God having so much mercy, and so much love, and so much tenderness, that he's like, yes, but it's not going to work like that. But it is going to work. I am going to do it. I am going to bring salvation. And so all of this sets us up for Holy Week and Easter, right? And we do it every, every year. Uh, my son David was doing some stuff for, for uh, Passover, and I get out my Passover notes. And I have Passover notes going back, you know, eight years of preaching on Passover. And Passover started last night, by the way. And we're, today is the first day of it. God shows us mercy as we don't get it. We don't get that those people were shouting, save us now, Jesus, save us now. And Jesus was fulfilling so many prophecies riding into Israel, riding into Jerusalem as their king to save them. So as we go into Holy Week, spend this week and up to Easter Asking God to show you just deeper and more. Show you more about what it means that your sins have been forgiven. And that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross way before you were born. Before any of your sins were committed, He died for them. And He wiped them all away. So that the moment you believe in Him, you're in Him forever. You're, you're with Him. It says in Ephesians, we're already seated with Him in the heavenly places. Sort of present past tense all at once. 
God works with us as we, as we ask for things and we want things and we think things are happening. He is continually working with us to make our, His plan fit into our little heads so that we can understand it. And then we can live by it and we can act on it. And we can serve Him. Because now that Israel has had this victory and they've been saved from all of their eyes getting gouged out, do you think they're going to really want to serve Saul more than they would have if they wouldn't have had that opportunity, right? Not saying God brought Nahash, but when evil happens, God uses that evil for good. And the good that's going to come from it is everybody's loyalty to Saul. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are always so merciful with us. That we don't have to fear. That we don't have to be afraid of bad news. That you are always here to save us. That we don't have to be intimidated by the hopeless hopeless cases in the world. Because you are always providing hope. I pray, Lord, as we go out today, as, as we enter into this Holy Week and leading up to Easter, that you would help us to stand against hopelessness and help us to see that you are saving, that you have saved, that you are saving, and that you will save us. And we can count on that. We love you, Lord Jesus. We praise you. Amen. All right. Let's stand and sing number...